Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, uh, we are aware that on our own we cannot come to you. And so, Lord, we praise you for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And as we consider Psalm 1 as the first of our songs for the summer, we pray that your spirit would be at work within us, that it would continue to sharpen us, to refine us, to direct our gaze to the Lord Jesus. Again, we pray all of this in his name. Amen. The book of Psalms is a little different than, than the other books of the scriptures. I mean... I don't mean radically different, it's the word of God, it's God's inspired word for us, but it's a little different. It doesn't have some of the same um, circumstances or or, uh, complexities that a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah has. Let me explain. Within the Psalms, we have Psalms written by David, we have Psalms written uh, by Moses, by Solomon. This guy named Asaph, whoever he was, right? And, and then some we don't know who, who, who wrote the psalm. And that leads to a, an interesting question. Which psalm goes first, right? I mean, we could, say, order them chronologically. So the first one that was written, we put that one first. And the last one that was written, we put that one last. I'll give you a hint, that's not what happened. Uh, Moses, who's probably the earliest psalms, are somewhere in the middle. Uh, we could maybe order the psalms by, by like the longest one first. You can imagine starting the psalms with Psalm 119, right? And you say, wow, this book's never going to end. It's, it's a great and wonderful psalm, but it's, it's long. Or, or maybe you start the, the, the book with the shortest psalms. But I have a feeling if you did that, you would never finish. So what then is it about the way in which the Psalms are ordered. And to be clear, I I think that the Holy Spirit has inspired the Psalms to be ordered in the way that they are. And here you have Psalm 1. It's just a six-verse little psalm. It's a psalm about worship. It's a psalm that helps us understand the way in which we should worship God. And it's placed right at the beginning of the Psalms because the Psalms were the songbook of Israel, right? I mean, we, we have songbooks, we have hymnals, whether they're, they're in our hand or, or whether they're electronic and, you know, on the screen. Uh, we have hymnals and we order them in a, a particular way um, that, that shows, you know, what our, our faith is comprised of or, or the way that we want our worship services to go, well, the book of Psalms is no different. And so Psalm 1 is not just Psalm 1 by itself, but it gives shape for the whole of worship. This morning, as we look at Psalm 1, we're going to see that there are two clear ways, two clear paths that you could choose. One leads to destruction. That's a hard path. The second leads to life and and righteousness and and, and God-pleasing worship. And I would say that, that seems like the easy option for me. But what we'll see as we look at Psalm 1 is that it's 
it's not straightforward. I don't mean that it's not clear. Rather, I mean that it doesn't always meet our expectations. That as we come to Psalm 1, if we come with um, kind of a, a spirit of haughtiness, that you have it all figured out, or maybe of apathy that you don't even really care, you're going to find that Psalm 1 provides a pretty strong indictment against you. But if you come here this morning with a humble heart, if you come here feeling broken, hurting, tired, exhausted, be comforted because Psalm 1 will have a promise of peace. My prayer this morning for both you and I is that by the power of Christ, we are able to stand in the presence of God, blameless with exceeding joy. Now, as I've said, Psalm 1 presents two ways to live. And if we look at these two categories, uh, we first just have to recognize, does that mean anything? I mean, let's be honest, I could separate the world into all those that live at my home and everybody else. That's not really of any value to any of you, right? Um, what, what does that mean? Well, here we have a, a separation of the world, and it's a clear separation, and it's a separation, quite frankly, between sin and righteousness. So it's important that we look at what is separating these, these groups, and it's important that we recognize who is separating these groups. It, it's not as though, um, you know, a pastor or a song leader or, or a king is saying, well, if you do this, you're, you're in good standing, and if you don't do this, you're in bad standing. Rather, this is the Word of God. And just, even just a few minutes ago, we, we sang, this is my Father's house. It's a wonderful hymn. It, it's a wonderful hymn that pre, presents this picture of all creation belonging to the Lord and giving praise and honor to the Lord. But it's also, as it des describes the Lord, a reminder that this is God's world. And we operate, we live according to God's rule. God is the one here in Psalm 1 who's presenting two categories, right? Two ways to live. And these two ways have an impact on our worship. So that, what does that mean? It means we can't say we don't care. It means we have to say, Lord, I might not really want to agree, but I recognize that this is your word and I will follow it. So as we can think about that, let's consider the hard way, right? It's right there at the beginning of Psalm 1. This is the hard way. It says how blessed is the man, right? But it's the man who does not. And what does this man not do? He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's the hard way. And look at the movement. It goes from walking to standing to sitting. And that's not just the psalmist kind of getting bored of one word and so wanting to add in a different word just for flair or variety. Rather, it's a progression. And, and you can think about this kind of just as you were to, to approach a decision in life. Right? As you come to a decision, you could go this way or you could go that way. What you find is that 
if the Lord is not guiding your counsel, right? If the, if the Lord's word is not shaping your decision, more often than not, you end up following, that is to say, walking after the counsel of the wicked. And if you don't quickly turn around, what ends up happening? You become complacent. And you end up standing in the path where the sinners are. Right? So you've made the, the you've, you've, you've heard poor counsel, you've, you've turned to poor counsel, and now you're just standing there. And even still, if you don't repent of that, you end up sitting, dwelling, resting with the scoffers. So there's this progression in Psalm 1 as, as you choose the hard way, as it were, of, of growing implacability, of a growing resistance to God and to His Word. And it's easy to understand why, right? We are all conceived in sin. This is not new to, to us, I hope. Um, we share the sinful nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so the result is that every word, every thought, every deed that we have is tainted by sin. We then say, thanks be to God that we have forgiveness with Christ. But even as we say that, even if we are a Christian, we continue to wrestle with sin. And so we realize that apart from the Lord's counsel, apart from His word, we are often lost in our ways. And so there's an, there's an oxymoronic effect, right? An oxymoron remembers when you have two words that mean opposite things and you jam them together, like jumbo shrimp, right? I won't say military intelligence, but somebody is thinking it, right? So there's an oxymoronic effect, is that this hard way, because of our sin, is actually for us the easiest hard way you could possibly imagine. It's where we live and reside if left to our own devices. If we are apart from the Lord, or if we're not thinking rightly about the Lord and how He has revealed Himself, the result is that we follow the path of the wicked, that we stand in the place of the sinner, and that we sit in the seat of the scoffer, and we find that it's awfully easy to do so. Now, the reason I, I'm spending the time to, to think about this is because of its importance for us now. Uh, if you look with me at verse 5, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Kids in the room, just a clarification. This is not a reference to people who sit when we sing, okay? And I, and I say that, I don't mean that as a joke, um, but you know, this is too serious for that sort of humor. What I mean to say is that those who are not thinking rightly and are following in the, this path that leads to scoffing, what we see is that they have no standing before God. They have no standing in the assembly of the righteous. Well, what is that? Quite frankly, that's our worship service. That, that, that means that as we are gathered by God's Spirit, 
if we're not a people that are marked by our devotion and love for the Lord, if instead we're marked by our disobedience to the Lord, it means we have no standing in worship. It, it means that we're all fooling ourselves as we stand here. And it goes even beyond that. Because not only does that describe the way in which we live through the week, it also describes the content of our worship services. If preaching is full of error, if prayer is directed not toward the Lord, but maybe toward our, ourselves, right? Or, or if our singing lacks clarity, then we ought to see from Psalm 1 that we're in danger. We're in danger that our worship is meaningless at best, and at worst, harmful to our souls. So this is a hard way, because it ends in our destruction, but because of our sinful nature, it's the easiest hard way imaginable. But it's not the only way, right? If there's a hard way, there's presumably an easy way. And so if we, you know, we see here, if we look at this second way, um, we'll see that it is far better. Look with me at verse 3. It says, he, that's, this is the man who's gone the right way, who's not walked in the counsel of the wicked and, and on down the line, uh, but he's, he's done the right thing. Uh, it says that he's going to be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. This is a picture of, of what we hope life is about. This is a picture of, of what we hope life to be, right? All of us. We, we want to be prosperous and successful. We want to be stable, steadfast, right? The, the picture of the other way is getting tossed by the wind. This is not so. Right? There's, a, there's a picture that, that can help us understand this, and it's actually a picture of a, a baobab tree, which is a funny name. Sometimes they call it the upside down tree because if you look at its roots, its roots actually look more like branches than, than others. Um, but, but we need to, to, to think about this tree. It grows in Africa. If you've watched the movie, the cartoon, The Lion King, it was one of the trees that was present there. The reason you need to, to think about the baobab tree is because the things can live for thousands of years. There was a recent, uh, I think it was 2011, one died and you know, they counted the tree rings. I would not have wanted that job. And they estimated that it had been alive for 2,400 years. Just think about that. That means that when Jesus was born, this tree was already 400 years old. But it survived. It lived. And, and I mean, we could talk about, you know, the, it has these mechanisms for pulling water up into the trunk so that even if there's a drought, it could... Uh, fine, but let's just not lose sight of the fact that it, it lived for 2,400 years. That's amazing. The description here of the man uh, of, of, that's going the easy way, as it were, is as a tree that bears fruit. A tree that's leaf does not wither. Don't think blue spruce that's prickly and uninviting. Think a big maple tree or a big oak tree that provides these, this great canopy with excellent shade and is a perfect place for, for hanging a swing and finding rest and living and producing fruit no matter what happens. 
whether there's a drought or whether there's rain, no matter the circumstances of life, that this path is fruitful and successful. And I say, sign me up for that one. Right? It's waiting for us. And it says in verse 2 that this is yours if you delight in the law. If you meditate on the law day and night. Well, what does that mean? You know, as we think about the law, I naturally think of of the summary of the law in the Ten Commandments. And I'm just going to read from the Ten Commandments now. Is it there is where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or worship it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. So, we've said that this is the easy path because it's the one you want to be on, right? That doesn't take uh, 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 much to figure out. Um, That you want to be fruitful in life. And it says that we have to meditate on God's law. We have to delight in God's law. And that's the summary of the law. And as I read that, as I hear that read, I say, we have quite a task before us. In fact, if this is the easy way, it's the hardest easy way you're going to find. It's not hard because it's not what you want. Rather, it's hard because we can't do this. How do we keep this law? It seems daunting. It means I'm really going to have to work hard. And as I think about things like that, I realize, you know, in the scriptures, how often when I'm having difficulty, as I'm coming to the text, I, I recognize the but God, right? And, and here, we see a little of that, but it doesn't go the way that we want it to. A few moments ago, our New Testament text was part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, And there, he's talking on a number of topics, but he's describing life in the kingdom of God. And he engages with the law, right? And and so I'm, I'm going to reread some of that. He begins by saying, do not think that I come to abolish the law and the prophets. May I suggest that if Jesus doesn't abolish the law and the prophets, we ought not do that either? Right? We ought not just say, well, you know, Psalm 1, whatever that means, it meant that a long time ago and it's not really for us. It's God's word. We have to wrestle with it. But he goes on. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now these verses are difficult for me to read. They should be difficult for for you to hear as well. I mean, I, I can say categorically, I've not murdered anyone. 
that should be of some comfort to you. Uh, but but truthfully, I've not murdered anyone. Usually when I say that, somebody says, yet. I don't know if that says something about me or them, but we'll put that to one side. But Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is not content to leave me without having shot anybody or stabbed anybody. He's saying that if I get angry with somebody, I'm guilty of murder. Now, I'm looking for a loophole. Now, hang on. That seems like he's adding to the law. Maybe that seems like, like legalism, like he's, he's drawing a line around what the law says. You know, and Pastor Tony spoke a couple weeks ago talking about legalism, and as he did that, he said that legalism is when we surround the law of God, and it ends up cutting us off from the Lord, and it ends up cutting us off from grace and mercy. Is that what Jesus is doing here? I don't think so. Uh, why? If he were, it would go something like this. You've heard it said that you should not murder, and because you're not supposed to murder, I don't want you to even think about it. Because if you don't think about it, you won't do it, and if you don't do it, you're fine. That's not what he says. That's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is he's going to the root of the sin. He's pushing sin to its source, right? We recognize that we do things, and sometimes those are sinful actions, but we also have to wrestle with the motive behind them, right? If, if I were to, I don't know, bake someone a cake, it would be better if my wife baked a cake, but just, if I bake somebody a cake, you might very well say, well, you know, that's sweet, that's nice, it took time, it took effort, it, it took energy, you know, and I, I give you a cake, and you say, oh, wow, thanks, it's an expression of love and, and you know, care. But if, on the other hand, the reason I baked you a cake is because I really thought my cakes were better than your cakes and I wanted to prove to you how much better my cakes were, well, then it's not love, it's snobbery. It's not love, it's arrogance. It's not love, it's, it's quite frankly, hate. Um, you know, the motives matter. What goes on in our hearts matter. And now we come back to Psalm 1. How does Jesus' words help us with these two ways in Psalm 1? Now, we've already established, right, that, that we have to delight in the law. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, that seems like a pretty hard thing to do. But then as we then think about the way that Jesus applies that to our hearts, which are sinful, and wicked, and as we think about all the thoughts we have on a daily basis that aren't pleasing to God, we recognize that this is impossible. It's impossible for me to delight in the law of God because I cannot keep it. It is impossible for me to delight in the thing that perpetually indicts me of sin, of damnable sin. I can't do it. And if we stop here, we recognize that this is words of death to the dying. There's no way to come to worship. On the one hand, we choose to sin and we wander and we have no place amongst the righteous. 
But on the other hand, if we're trying to, to delight in the Lord and we're trying to do what He says, we really can't. And so we find that we're in the exact same spot. So if I stood here today, if I stopped here today, and we left it at this, we should tear our clothes in distress because there'd be no hope. If I gave you a list of things for you to do today, quite frankly, you should probably pick up your stones and start throwing them because you and I both know we can't do it. I can't keep the extra burden of to-do Christianity. So what is our hope? Where do we go? Our hope is in the man. Right? So, so how blessed is the man? Who's the man? Who is it that delights in the law? Who is the man who meditates on God's law day and night? Who's the one who is in the presence of the Lord? Who's, who's part of the assembly? Right? Who is that? It's Jesus. He's the one who fulfills the law. He's the one who keeps the law. He meditates on the law. And that means that he is our only hope. Now, I need to be somewhat careful, right? I could, th this excites me. This, I hope it excites you as we think about Jesus, as we think about the way that Jesus brings us to the Lord. And we could keep talking about Jesus and what he has done and who he is until the coffee in the urns in the narthex afterwards are cold and, and the donuts are stale. And we don't want to do that. But, but honestly, how do we wrestle with this Jesus who is our hope? Well, as we think about this Jesus, I'm going to present three aspects of who he is and what he's done. And they're going to grow in their importance and in, in their effect for us right now. The first is the reality, the second is the vintage, and the third is the presence. As we think about the reality of Jesus and, and him being uh, for us, we think about Daniel 7. That's a passage of scripture, sometimes it's called uh, the Son of Man passage. And for context, what we understand is that Daniel's having this vision of things to come. And, and there's kind of some terrifying bits, and, and he's not real certain, and you know, he realizes that this is about kingdoms, and what you see running through Daniel is that these kingdoms will, will rise up, they'll, they'll fight with each other, they'll devour each other, and then they'll be destroyed. But there's one kingdom that's not, and it's the kingdom of God. Right, And so in chapter 7, uh, Daniel has this vision of the Lord upon his throne, and there are, are myriads and myriads around him, I would say, worshiping him. And in the midst of the vision, Daniel says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's into this picture, right? It's this picture of heavenly worship and heavenly life, life with the Lord, that the Son of Man enters onto the stage. And he's before the Lord. I mean, to some degree, yes, he's part of the worship. Uh, but more than that, he, he's in the presence of the Lord in a way that nothing else is. He's with the Lord. 
Now, we could say, well, this is a vision. This is, this is kind of a one-off mention buried in the Old Testament. But what we need to understand is that in, in the days after Daniel, this became a bit of a buzzword. This son of man person, whoever that was, was going to be the one who was in the presence of the Lord, who was going to then lead God's people. In short, it was the Messiah. And so when... Jesus takes the name Son of Man, this is what he's referring to. Now, if you're anything like me, as I was growing up, I thought it was really easy. There, there's a couple of names for God, or there's a couple of names for Jesus. One is Son of God. Well, that must mean he's divine. And there's Son of Man. That must mean, well, you know, he's man. What we actually see is that they're switched. When the Bible talks about the Son of God, it's a reference to David. It's the fact that Jesus is the greater son of David, that he truly is man. But when it's son of man, it's this picture of Daniel 7. It's this picture that, that Jesus is the one who comes from the Father, who's going to, to lead his people and establish an everlasting kingdom. An everlasting kingdom that worships the Lord. And we see that the Father himself has sort of a divine stamp upon that idea when he says at both Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration, this, Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What does he add at the transfiguration? Listen to him. Jesus is this man in Psalm 1. He's the man who delights in the law of God. He's the man who meditates on the law of God, and he's the one with whom God is well pleased. He's perfect. Amen. Now, as we think about that, we worship the Lord, but we recognize that that's not enough. If you're here, if you're tired, if you're broken and worn out because of sin and its effects upon your life, or, or the... the the difficulties of life, and you hear that Jesus is the guy who delights in the Lord, that reality is not enough. But it leads us to a question of vintage. Now, most people either think of cars or wine. Um, I, I really, full disclosure, don't know much about wine. Uh, I know that there's red, I know that there's white, I know some of it comes with bubbles in it. Um, that's about it. Uh, if you want a, a fun story, ask my wife about a science experiment I once did that involved blueberry juice, sugar, and an unair-conditioned apartment. I didn't, I didn't get the security deposit back. Um, I don't know much about wine, but I do know that you, know, you don't put new wine in old wineskins and that. And I, knew that. and I know that wine comes in vintages. There's new, there's old, there's in-between. And with people, we, we have vintages. We, we really have two. We have old and new. What we need to realize is that when we come to the Lord Jesus, not only is he the one who has fulfilled the law, but as our confession of faith from Isaiah, or our assurance of pardon from Isaiah this morning communicated, he's the one who takes our sin upon himself. He's the one who, who, who bears our sin and gives us blamelessness. He gives us a righteousness. And it means we've gone from an old man to a new man. 
a new vintage, right? Galatians 2.20 describes it this way. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is incredibly strong language. It means that for Christians all down through the ages, right, that when they, by grace, are called to faith, they move from the old vintage to the new. But note also the language, right? It's not simply like, well, you know, I decided to live for Jesus and stuff. Uh, Christians are crucified with Christ. By faith, I climbed up on the cross with Jesus and my sin is dealt there. it's, It's gone. It's dealt with. And what remains is the new life I have in Christ. I am a new vintage. I'm also newly empowered by God's Spirit to live for Christ. I don't do this perfectly. I won't do this perfectly until the Lord calls me home or until He returns. But this means that I can look at the law. I can think about it. I can meditate on it. I can chew on it. I can wrestle with it. I see the way in which the law acts as a tutor pointing me to Jesus. I can see then as I read Psalm 1 and I meditate on the law that I have a place in the right, amongst the righteous because I believe in Jesus, because I've been united to Jesus, and because he has given me his righteousness. But it goes beyond that. There, there's a question of presence. And, and I don't mean, um, uh, by presence, I guess I mean placement or location. And, and to understand that, we, we go to the end of the book of Jude. And there, as Jude is concluding his, his very short letter, he says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand... Note, stand, what we're, we're hoping for from Psalm 1 is a standing in, the, in with the righteous. Jude is saying, to the one who makes you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with exceeding joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the fruit of Psalm 1, right? If, if Jesus is the man and, and he's as the, the tree that's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, we would do well to ask, what's his fruit? His fruit are you and me. As, as the Lord has worked within us, as the Lord has made us righteous, we then are changed and we are his fruit. And Jude helps us understand the result. We are part of the assembly of the righteous. We are, before the Lord, worshiping the Lord, not as a lawbreaker, but as a law keeper. We can't do this on our own strength. It's because we're united to Jesus. We're adopted sons and daughters. And we can run to our loving Heavenly Father. And what do we say then about Psalm 1? Does it matter anymore? Yes, it matters. It's God's word. And we see that God still calls us to meditate on the law. And we see that the truth 
of the law needs to be part of our lives, that it needs to shape us and guide us. It doesn't do so by our own strength, but it does so because of God's Spirit working within us. It does so because of what Jesus has done for us. What then do we say? If we come here this morning thinking that we just want to try hard to devote ourselves to the Lord, Psalm 1 proves to be a powerful and exhausting indictment against us. We can't do it. We can't keep the law. Not at the beginning, not at the end, not anywhere in between. But on the other hand, if we come recognizing our own shortcomings and we say, Lord Jesus, help us because I can't do it, we see that Jesus has kept the law for us. And in Jesus, we can keep it as well. So what does that mean? It means I say, come and worship. And I don't mean that as to say, come back to Lydie's next week. It'll be great. We're going to sing some songs. We'll hear a sermon. We'll... No, no, no. What, what I mean to say is realize that you're standing in the presence of the Lord, blameless, with joy. Understand that, that who you are has been changed from a law-breaking evildoer to one who's law-keeping in Christ. Your, your, your standing before the Lord is blameless. It's righteousness. It's wonder. And so in light of that, I say, come and worship. Come, see the Lord Jesus, see all that he's done, and worship. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do come in the name of the Lord Jesus, knowing that we cannot come by any other name, knowing that we cannot come in our own deeds, we cannot come in our own strength, and that if we try, we find that it, it's impossible. We are exhausted, and we then stand in condemnation. Lord, we come to you in light of the work of the Lord Jesus, and we praise you that we can come and worship you. We pray that your word would continue to shape us, shape our hearts, shape our minds, shape the, our worship services, knowing that our morality, knowing that our ethical decisions matter to worship, but knowing also of our standing with you because of the Lord Jesus. We pray all of this with great praise. Amen.